So it's nice to be able to do both sides of it because I don't think I could um, personally do one or the other, you know, as a, you know, 40 hours a week, I, I, I would need to play the violin in order to be happy. That's just part of who I am. And so I'm thankful that the situation I am in currently allows me to do that. Gifted by area businessman Henry Stambaugh, the doors to Stambaugh Auditorium opened in 1926 to become a place of enjoyment, entertainment, and education for the people of Youngstown and surrounding areas. These are the stories, performances, and conversations of artists and supporters of this historic landmark. This is the 1926 Podcast. Welcome and thanks for listening to the 1926 Podcast. In today's episode, I'm talking with Jay Kozarinski, the orchestra librarian for the Young Sound Symphony Orchestra. Welcome, Jay. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Jamie. It's great to be here. So let's get started. Can you tell me a little bit about your background? I'm a native of Youngstown. I was born and raised here. Went to Boardman High School. When I graduated high school, I got into the studio of a violinist that's taught at Cleveland State University. Um, his name was Eric Eichhorn. So I was able to go off and study with him. And I, at the time, he was associate concertmaster. And so it was great to be able to go off and um, have that sort of training. You know, I just remember the memories and uh, all the stories he would tell and the way he was able to teach and just how good of a musician he was. So I was really honored to be able to study with him. And I still talk to him every now and then. And, but living in Cleveland is a little little difficult as far as making money and you know, heavily saturated with amazing players. So it was really difficult for me to get work. And I eventually took um, half. About, about a half a year off and I moved back to town and I ended up coming to YSU uh, studying with John Wilcox who was also a former concertmaster of the Youngstown Symphony but yeah I'm glad it brought me back because it brought me back to my roots and now I get to work with the Youngstown Symphony. Being the orchestra librarian for the YSO um, is that something that you always wanted to do? Did you know that you wanted to be an orchestra librarian um, from a young age? Um, no, actually. So the, the librarian thing just kind of developed. Um, back in high school, you know, we had three orchestras, symphony, um, which is, you know, some big symphony orchestra. We had a chamber orchestra, which is small strings only, and then another classical orchestra, which was just a bigger symphony with no winds. It was just lots of string players. And so there were, I was one of about five or six other students in charge of making sure that all the ensembles had music. And so I got to work with music very early. Um, and I saw that I really liked being organized and creating nice stacks of music. So that kind of instilled that organizational sense in me. And so when I went to Cleveland States, they had asked me um, if I would just go through and clean up their their music library and that's what I did and I didn't prepare any concerts or anything they were just happy with uh, how quickly and and well I got the job done and so that was like another another push towards wanting to do something like this the librarian before me her name was Natalie Sayoon and the librarian before her was Lucy Sharkey and um, so Lucy had left the orchestra and my friend Natalie got the job and I would help her with things. She ended up leaving the post and I was offered the job. And so, no, it was not something I had initially planned to be as a professional. It just kind of happened. And 
I'm, I'm grateful for that. Uh, you know, I don't, I'm not sure if many people listening to this are aware that, you know, when we go take an audition, a lot of times we show up and we're auditioning for a single position against maybe 70 other people. And, you know, I've personally experienced that. I've, I played with Akron Symptom for a few years and I showed up and I think I was candidate 19 out of 68 people. So it's pretty scary in terms of what we're going to do for work. And so a lot of times you end up finding yourself in this position where you're like, well, maybe, maybe I'm not going to win a job. Maybe it's just, it's not going to happen for me. Um, I still get to play with, um, you know, other orchestras. I, I play with the Wheeling Symphony, the Erie Philharmonic, Pittsburgh Festival Opera, the Butler County Symphony, where I'm also the librarian for. So it's nice to be able to do both sides of it. Because I don't think I could um, personally do one or the other 40 hours a week. I, I, I would need to play the violin in order to be happy. That's just part of who I am. And so I'm thankful that the situation I am in currently allows me to do that. I'm sure that it's that way for a lot of librarians. Um, I know some people that are really big performers. You know, my uh, friend of mine, Simone Seeley, is the principal librarian of the Orlando Philharmonic. She's a great horn player from Pittsburgh. She was always really, really organized and did things like the Aspen Festival and Tanglewood and was a librarian fellow at these places. And so she found her in through music, through the librarian world, just like I did. And so, uh, yeah, it, it's interesting. It really is how we come to this position because it's not something you can go to college for or get a degree in. You can go get a degree in library science, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's that's going to make you a good orchestral librarian. I think it's a lot of experience and asking questions and just being um, inquisitive, you know, always, always wanting to work and know more. Right. And a, a lot of organizational skills. Exactly. Yes. So you started hinting on a few of the tasks that mm -hmm. a librarian performs. Um, if you had to build a job description to explain to us exactly what a librarian does, could you do that for us? Sure. Um, so we get our season from, you know, our executive director or our music director, and we go through it and we decide um, what do we own already? What standards have they programmed that are already in our library? And so I'll, I'll start with those first and I'll go through and I'll, I'll pool everything that's programmed for the season. And so I'll go and I'll lay it all out by concert. So I'll start with everything we own first, which is like your, your Mozarts, your Bachs, your Beethoven's. Um, if in the instance we don't have it, I'll go to um, the Lux catalog, Lux Music Library in Chicago. So I'll order the, the stuff we don't have. And then I'll go through the list and I'll look at the pop shows. And I'll figure out where I need to find it, what is going to be rental only, what may have licensing issues. Um, is there anything on the list that may not um, have an orchestral arrangement that exists of it or in uh, licensing terms is, is the arrangement legal? Has, was it created properly and licensed properly? So it's a big um, issue with licensing and copyrights. So I always, I mean, it'll take me maybe 25 hours to, to create uh, all the parts and have them all edited for a Masterworks concert and maybe around 30, 35 hours um, to prepare Pops concerts. But there's lots of little things that happen in between there. So before music has to go out, string parts have to get bowed. And that tells, that tells the players, are we going up or down? Are we slurring these notes? Are we not slurring these notes? So I'll take all the stuff that I currently have um, and I'll scan it all or 
Um, I'll actually send her the parts if they're they're big works. Um, and she'll, Rachel Stegman, will, our concert master, will put all the Boeings in the parts and I'll get those scanned and uploaded to our Dropbox, at which point I'll notify principal second violin that the first violin Boeings are done and that she can know, now go ahead and match her parts to what the concert master did. And subsequently it'll go through the chain of principles. And once they're all done, I take the PDFs that, the, that were uploaded to the Dropbox and I create the stacks that would be uh, practice parts for the musicians that get sent out or put on the stands. So that's kind of like a, a rundown of what happens. Sometimes if, if the conductor picks a work that is classical, but yet not in the public domain, um, so it's still copywritten, lots of works by like Shostakovich, Prokofiev, um, some Rachmaninoff, you know, your barber, things like that, they're going to be rental only. So it's classical music that somebody owns the rights to it. So I'll go on a website called Zymphonia.com. And it's like a, it's a music portal for publishers and orchestras. And you go on, you search it, and you say, I want Barber's Symphony Number no. 1 um, in C. And you'll submit a quote, and the publisher will get back to you, and they'll say, you can have the music for eight weeks, and it'll cost you $900. And so I submit that quote to the office and get it signed and paid. And then our rental is scheduled. Yeah, so that's kind of a rundown of what happens. And it could be very stressful. You know, you could end up being against a wall and not being able to find something. Or it's just too expensive. The rental music can end up being quite costly. You kind of talked a little bit about interacting with the publishers. Um when you're choosing music, what other kind of roles and relationships do you have with the musicians, the conductor, or even composers? Oh, okay. So, so next to like the executive director and the personnel manager, the person that communicates with the music director, for example, Randy um, would, for a pop show, if it was like country legends or something, he would just have a list of a bunch of titles and it'd be my job to go and find it. And a lot of times you can work directly with composers, with the arrangers themselves. Um, you know, a number of years ago, I think back in 2009, Randy had commissioned a piece by a composer. Um, his name was Greg Preckle, and uh, Greg actually did lots of the music for The Simpsons. And so he wrote this piece called Impressions at the Butler Institute of American Art. And so that was a commission that the, the Young Sun Symphony paid Greg to, to, to write. And so we re-performed that work um, at Butler North Church. It was about 10 years later. And so I was able to actually communicate with him and say, hey, um, th th actually, this, that was a, this is a great example of a living composer who were, were playing his music, but, and we had the parts, it was written for us, but it still required, um, you know, dues to be paid for its performance so that the composer was compensated. So um, there's absolutely no doubt that this profession has changed over the years due to modern technology. So oh, yeah. in your time um, being the librarian, what things have changed or advanced with new technologies? Oh, yeah, it's, that's a great question. So technology, I love technology. I'm always like, this is the new coolest thing. For me, day-to-day -day work, my biggest asset is um, a, an app to scan uh, anything and make it into a PDF. On a, in a basic sense, I think 
the librarian the librarian benefits from technology in the sense that things like that exists and we don't we aren't necessarily required to spend hours and hours you know resizing and wasting paper trying to get something to fit on you know like an eight by eleven we're not required to do that anymore just because things like i can take my genius scan app and i can point it at a very large original piece of music and it will just scan it and reduce it down to you know most of the time i'm dealing with 10 by 14 or 10 or 11 by 14 or 10 by 13 reducing it down to 8 by 11 for practice parts so these apps they just they capture the image they make it a pdf and it renders it down to the size that i need automatically so i'm automatically one spending less time you know trying to scan the same page 50 times trying to get it to fit I'm not wasting paper and I'm just overall getting the job done faster. So things like that really help um, as far as just music prep. As far as playing the music, there's lots of new things out there. One is called Encoda and the other one is called Nuzik. And groups like the London Symphony, um, the Montreal Symphony in Canada, they use these things and they're basically just a whole system of iPads. And your whole digital music library is, is stored in the cloud. And the cool thing for me about that is, um, is having had much experience sitting in the section and having to change a bowing in my part that, that is passed back from the front of the section with this iPad system, basically all the principal needs to do is change what they're looking to change in their part. And they press a button and that change is reflected all the way back for however many stands of say first violins that there are. So it's things like that, that I think technology is really going to help us. It, it, I think it's going to be a thing that's a, uh, a mainstream normality eventually as technology takes more and more hold of what we do. Um, personally, I don't really carry music anymore in my violin case. Uh, I, I play everything off of my iPad and I turn my pages with the Bluetooth pedal and I mark everything with my Apple Pencil. So it's kind of freeing. You don't have to, you know, have this. I remember in college, I used to, I used to carry a book bag and I would have to put so much music in my case and so much music in my book bag along with all my other things for all my other courses. And I just would lug around 50 pounds worth of this and that every day. And it was just, wow, I'm, I'm glad to be free of that. Right. Yeah. And then it's, it's funny you mentioned a Bluetooth pedal for changing the pages because I was watching a um, recorded concert from, I can't even remember which orchestra at this point, and they were using iPads. And I, the thought that came into my head is, how do they <laughs> how do they change the page? Yep. Because I know even reading a book on my iPad, I will go to change a page and accidentally change like 12 pages. Yep. <laughs> so that's so interesting. Now I know how that works. Oh, yeah. And that itself, for me, when I first got my iPad, that was, using the iPad was easy. It was playing music and having to, I guess, d divert your, um, you know, we use a lot of uh, peripheral vision when we're sitting in the orchestra. And I guess you have to divert, like, a fraction of your peripheral vision to look down and make sure you hit the right pedal. I mean, I, I have no problem admitting that I've been in a performance and accidentally hit the wrong side and the page went backwards instead of forwards and then I have to quickly you know either tap it the other side with my foot or just hit the side of the page with my finger but that in itself is a very um, interesting learning curve because you you know if you're sitting in a section the inside person the person that sits on the left side of the stand is the person that changes the page so instead of having to like you know 
take my bow off the string, set it in my left hand, lean over and turn the page. I now have to learn how to just keep playing and just tap my foot on the floor in the right spot, of course. But that is, it is a little bit of a learning curve to do that. That's so interesting. <laughs> yeah, I think so too. <laughs> Being part of the Youngstown Symphony Orchestra, um, what has been your most influential experience? Well, for me, um, the, the job with Youngstown has kind of come full circle. When I was really young, I remember coming to the symphony um, with my aunt and we'd sit up in the balcony and I just remember seeing all sorts of concerts. You know, I saw Trisha Parks, Paganini, and Mark O'Connor was a really famous American fiddler violinist. I saw him do his um, his own violin concerto and I it, it was great to see that as a kid. And so as I started playing, I eventually um, became a member of the um, the youth symphonette, which is just strings. And then eighth grade, I got into the youth orchestra and that's where I met Randy. And I, ironically, when I was in the youth orchestra, I think my first or second year, I got to play under our former music director, Isaiah Jackson. Um, and then Randy came and um, he conducted us for one concert and we did uh, Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, I think. And I was principal viola at the time. And so that was great to work with him in that capacity. And I moved off to Cleveland, obviously. And I came back and I think in 2011, I started playing with the orchestra on a more regular schedule. And I think since then I've played just about every concert. And so in that aspect, playing as a professional, as a sub, and then being offered the position and being able to work with Randy, someone I had watched come here, I played under as a youngin, and that for me is the, the, the really rewarding experience. Um, just to have so much of my connection to the area kind of come full circle. And I, you know, that's something I did not quite realize until after Randy had passed. I was like, wow, he, he really was in my life quite a long time. And I didn't realize the musical impact he had made on it. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So that was, that's it for me. It really is. You know, I've, there's several concerts that have been stuck in my memory, but I think just, just the fact that my musical path has kind of come full circle with Youngstown and that's really rewarding for me. That's why I think why I'm so connected to it. Yeah. Do you, do you have any goals that you'd like to pursue in your future as a librarian? Um, maybe some different opportunities or um, other roles that you'd like to pursue? Well, I mean, I, I would ultimately like to be able to, it, it, let's, let's, so I guess, I guess the way to answer this question is it's really hard to make a living as a professional violinist or musician in general, just to make all of your income totally off of playing. So I think for me, as long as I am able to play the violin professionally and be able to freelance and be able to have some sort of librarian job that, that keeps me on my toes, that's acceptable to me. This summer, um, luckily I was asked back to be the principal librarian for the Sunflower Music Festival in Topeka, Kansas, which got canceled obviously because of the pandemic. Um, and for me, that's like another stepping stone because that's a festival that's been around for a really long time. And there are um, some insanely uh, high status musicians that come to play in that. And so for me, being able to work in with those musicians in that capacity is just wow. It's nice to know that I guess I'm good enough to do that. <laughs> but yeah, I guess as long as I am, as long as I'm working as a musician, 
or librarian, uh, I'm happy. I, I can't really see myself doing anything outside of the music field. Eventually, maybe if, if a, a full-time librarian job came up for a big orchestra, maybe I could take it, but I think that would be really difficult for me because then I wouldn't be able to play the violin. And that would be, that's something I do every day. I still get up and I practice every day, even though we're not really working. It's about, you know, maintaining your technique. And I'm grateful that I get to, you know, get up every day and open a case and be reacquainted with a very familiar friend. And so I think anything that I'm doing in music is good enough for me. Well, wonderful. Thank you so much for um, talking with me today and joining us on the 1926 podcast. Thank you for having me. I'm glad, uh, glad to be a guest and happy to do it again. <laughs>